it was an amazing experience, honestly, for a person from Paris to have, I fell in love with the Outlack, um, to have the experience to go and live in Limerick. Um, indigenous communities and have an insight in such an amazing culture. I felt really privileged, it was really special. Hello and welcome to Life in the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling the stories of rural and regional women. I'm Emily Herbert, your host for this episode. Today we're speaking with Alinor Leguvilo and I'm so excited to share her story. The French woman has led a huge, rich life across the globe, and just when I thought I'd heard it all, she pulled another tale out of her very full swag of stories. Just a note, the audio is a little patchy in parts, but that is life on Zoom as we know it. Originally from Paris, Alinor's heart lies in adventure. She's lived in Brazil for 18 months, managing a boutique hotel, has trekked across Mongolia on horseback twice, and has travelled from Siberia to Paris in a motorbike sidecar. But her most recent and all-encompassing trip was here in Australia. Passionate about advocating for the plight of the Aussie wild horse, Eleanor trekked the Bicentennial National Trail with her three Brumbies, an expedition that took 13 months across 5,330 kilometres. Eleanor started in Victoria's Healesville and ended in Cooktown, Queensland. Around 50 people have completed the trek. More people have walked on the moon. She was the second woman to complete the trail and the first with wild horses. Her Australian story started 16 years ago when the then 20-year-old Alinor landed in Melbourne for a three-week holiday. She never took her flight home and ended up in Central Australia working in remote Indigenous communities. It was an amazing experience, honestly, for a person from Paris to have, I fell in love with the Outlack, um, to have the experience to go and live in remote um, Indigenous communities and have an insight in such an amazing culture um, was, I felt really privileged. It was really special. The children I worked with were wonderful. The families, the elders, taught me hunting and teaching me their culture. I learned language. Um, and the, the outback in Central Australia is mind-blowing beautiful. And when you come from Paris, again, the, the vastness of the landscapes and how wild and raw it is, is amazing. But it's not far and flat desert. It's this beautiful red dirt um, uh, ranges, big mountain ranges, water holes, um, big white gums, riverbeds. It, it's just stunning country. And I really fell in love with that sense of, you know, the outback and the great vast open landscapes that you have here in Australia. And the experience of working on the indigenous communities was, yeah, really, really unique and special for someone my age who came from Paris. I felt very privileged. What were you doing out there? I was doing youth work um, and prevention for substance abuse. So I was working with indigenous youth. A lot of time that was disengaged was school and doing substance abuse like petrol sniffing back then um, 12 15 years ago there was still a lot of it in central australia before the intervention which was really heartbreaking um you know adults children's were petrol sniffing and it just fries your brain um yeah so a lot of uh, recreational activities um and keeping the children away from um at-risk behaviors so a lot of um, after school care and, and school holiday programs i imagine that work would be equal parts compelling and also confronting How did you find that when you first arrived? And and also, how did you maintain your sense of resilience, I suppose, being quite isolated out there? 
Sure. Well, back then it was honestly just an amazing experience and there wasn't too much, um, you know, domestic violence and alcohol abuse and all of stuff. There was, it, there were dry communities that didn't have alcohol. Domestic violence was nowhere near as bad as it is now. Um, so back then it was more about um, being able to get away from the community every few weeks and go and have a break and, you know, see civilizations and have a drink and um, catch up with friends and and just be a way to be able to step away because when you leave on communities you're very much immersed in it and there's no um breaks really people children come and knock at your door women needing help um there was at times very you know heartbreaking confronting emotionally draining situations and yeah it was tough it was definitely tough because um as i said you can't just step away from it you live on the community um and the strategies were for me was you know, the children are beautiful and it's so rewarding to put a smile on a child's face. Um, but yes, yeah, stepping away was what you could do to recharge a little bit. You have lived in some very far-flung places um, across the world. What are some of the other places that you've lived in and, and where did your sense of adventure come from? I'm not entirely sure. I think um, my father had businesses in Africa and travelled a lot. My mother's a journalist and travelled a lot. And they both, I think, instilled a, a real appreciation for different cultures and, and travelling and exploring in general in our, in our upbringing. I also have a, an aunt who um, has a world record of going across oceans on a windsurf. And at a young age when I was, I think, 15, my father took us from her departure from Dakar in Senegal in Africa to cross the Atlantic Ocean um, on a windsurf to all the way to the Caribbeans. Those things, you know, they, they kind of um, mark you as a, as a young person. And I just always had a passion for traveling. School wasn't really my thing. I left home young and I wanted to explore and travel. And I went and lived in India when I was 18 for three months, did an internship in photojournalism. Uh, I've done crazy adventures across the globe in Mongolia twice on a on horseback um, in Siberia with a sidecar motorbike all the way back to Paris, it was 10,000 kilometers on an old sidecar motorbike. Um, <laughs> in India, in, in India on an old Enfield from the East Coast to the West Coast to the Southern Tip, another motorbike journey. I uh, lived in Brazil for a year and a half in a really remote peninsula in Bahia, um, running a bar restaurant hotel for a bit of fun. Ended up, um, was meant to be a few months, ended up being there for a year and a half. My life just seems to take me to some of the most remote and um, crazy places. And I think, yeah, I enjoy finding myself in those places. Well, I think the doors perhaps open, but you certainly walk through them, which is probably a lesson for us all in, in saying yes to um, a couple of adventures along the way. So you were living in Central Australia. Is that where you first came across the idea of the Australian Brumby? Absolutely. I fell in love with the Australian Brumby when I first discovered them in the Central Desert. Um, it can be quite, you know, drush, hush, not forgiving um, kind of environment out there. And there's yet the most amazing horses in like usually most beautiful condition. Um, and they're not, you know, Australians have this preconceived idea that um, Brumbies are these little mongrel things that are inbred that look like nothing. They're just really poor horses. But 
these horses in the desert were magnificent and living in Docker River, um, a community west of Ayers Rock, I came across um, my first Brumbies that I would come and water to my house and I had a bathtub outside and there was this beautiful immaculate um, black stallion and a white mare and they um, transcended my memory forever um, and I write, I, I write about them in my book but they, they yeah they are such resilient such beautiful um, animals and in the wild they're really majestic. How did you come across the notion of uh, doing the bicentennial trail and, and how did that idea even come to mind? Well, obviously, I had a bit of a thing for doing crazy adventures and um, um, I had come across the Brumbies and I was really keen to do something with them. And a friend of mine, after I had moved to um, Barron, told me about the National Trail and the in intention to do sections of it. It kind of planted a seed in my head and grew from there and, you know, it's, it was sections of it and then I decided, no, I needed to do the whole thing. Um, that's when I decided to look into the different Brumby Association and found out more about the Brumby plight and the situation they were in and how the government um, manages them and how controversial um, their view is in um, the media and the public. They have eradicated um, rail calling in, in New South Wales, but I think it's very important that we um, try and get that happening in every state in Australia. That aerial calling is not a human manner to manage horses numbers, in my opinion. Mm, it is definitely a complex issue and, and it does need some more awareness and education around the numbers and, and how we're controlling those populations. So you came into um, ownership of three Brumbies, which eventually were your companions on the trail. How did you end up acquiring Roxanne, Cooper and River? Uh, well, that was an adventure in itself because um, I had been around horses all my life, but training a wild horse is uh, something I certainly hadn't done and quite a different experience that requires a lot of skill. So I was extremely lucky to have the support of the Guy Fox Association um, founders, Graham and Erica, um, who offered me to stay on um, their property to be able to train and be mentored by them to successfully train my horses for the trail. So from a wild horse to a horse that's going to carry a pack saddle and be bomb proof on the road and be hobbled at night and behind tape, etc. Is there's a lot, a lot that goes in. So mm. I initially had given three months of training, and that became eight months because I first acquired three buckskins, one of which was Cooper, um, who had a very quiet temperament, and I was able to train with no dramas. But there was two other buckskin stallions that were extremely dominant, and one extremely dominant, and the other one extremely wild. For six weeks, every day in the round yard, he would act like it was day one and the trail is hard enough I didn't need to add difficulties to my plate so I decided to let go of those two stallions that were quite um, difficult and I acquired River my Palomino who's a who was a younger colt who typically when a horse is younger they're softer and gentler to train um, which he was and um, my mare Roxanne who also is a Guy Fox Brumby but had been owned and uh, trained prior and was living at Erica's place and hadn't been um, doing anything for four years so I just had to bring her in and train her to the pack saddle and she had a very quiet she has a very quiet temperament and is very well behaved so she was a, a winner to have with me and her stamina is amazing and it's thanks to her that I got through those mountains at the beginning of the trail in the high Victorian country because my two other geldings that were a bit green still on the training side of things were just not up for it <laughs> and she was amazing at um, putting them into line and getting everyone working on the same basis. Did you have any moments on the trail, especially in those early days when your two geldings were uh, a little bit green, 
where you thought, holy Hector, these guys aren't, aren't equipped or aren't ready for this? Every single day, pretty much for the first three months. <laughs> um, yeah, the, you know, starting the trail from the south is, is extremely challenging. You're starting in the high Victorian country in the toughest section of the trail in really remote and isolated sections with very little water feed sometimes. So it's extremely grueling. And those two were really not uh, working with me and I would swear at them and I would call them donkeys and have meltdowns almost every day and it is really thanks again to my mayor that I managed to get through that section um, eventually you know after three months they came good and realized they weren't going to get out of this and they had to pull their weight and now they're amazing horses but um, yeah pretty much every day I thought this is not going to work whatever I put myself into and these horses are donkeys and there's no way in hell we're going to make it it's such a huge challenge to undertake, let alone with um, animals that probably uh, you're not seeing eye to eye with. How long did it take to prepare for the trail? A year and a half altogether between all the logistics, research, funding, um, acquiring gear, training the horses. Um, there's a lot of logistics in doing the national trail in terms of researching the trail because it's not really marked and they're really all guidebooks they are just little mud map drawings so researching the trail and making sure um, you know the the way you're going to go is got forage and water for your horses and um, organizing your food rations and where you're going to pick them up and um, having the right equipment, the you know safety equipment, and there's so much into it. Um, it was it was a, an adventure in itself. It's just a preparation, a year and a half of preparing, training horses. When we actually set off the first day, I felt like we had been through so much already. I'd love to talk about some of the logistics in terms of what did you pack for a, a year out in the in the wild. What were you sleeping in? What did you eat? What was the most invaluable piece of equipment you took? I did a lot of ditching gear in the first three months because what you think is essential as you do it becomes different, you know. Um, so I left, I started with a swag, I ditched a swag, I ended up sleeping just on a sheepskin. I had things like, you know, um, maybe three or four changes of clothes, I ended up having just a couple. My most valuable thing was probably my knife that my dad gave me my, um, that I had at my belt all the time that just got me out of situations, you know, needing to cut things or, you know, even every day cutting my food. I had really the, just a very bare necessities. Um, I had solar panels for charging up my equipment. Um, so I had a, a tiny little spot tracker that was at my belt that is a satellite hook device that can um, reach out for help with your coordinates if I get in strife. Um, and I also had a button for my um, expedition manager, which was Erica from the Gar Fuchs, sending her my coordinates to my camp every day. So I would press the button saying, I'm safe, I've reached my camp every day, and that would send the coordinates to her. So that was another really nifty device that I had on me every day. And if something happened, came off my horse, I still had that. Cooking-wise, I just had a tiny little moonwalk um, gas stove with a small gas bottle and one pot um, and my pot and one cup, and that was it. Um, so I would boil water um, and then I would make my, my dinner in the same pot. And my food was extremely boring. And for a French person, that was a big letdown for you. I had sardines and porridge, <laughs> two-minute noodles and um, dry peas and, yeah, and biscuits. And I would just take supplements to make up for it. I couldn't afford um, expensive dehydrated expedition food. It was too expensive for a year. So, um, yeah, the food was a big letdown on the trail. 
and for the horses, I had to have, you know, um, I couldn't carry feed really sometimes. I carried a little bit of copra, which is this dried um, coconut dehydrated powder to just give them a bit of a treat. But um, really, they just um, ate grass. So I had a hobbles for them, which are quite heavy, but they would carry them around their neck and the, all their horse gear. And then I had tape to put them behind at night and a tiny little energizer that was solar powered. Um, what else? Yeah, a sleeping bag, a decent sleeping bag and a, and a, and a three-man tent. So it sounds big, but it wasn't, but it was just big enough that if I was in really narrow weather, I could put all my equipment in it so it wouldn't get wet. Mm. Um, yeah, and that's about it. Water was a, a massive thing, wasn't it? Watering the horses. How did you go with that and, and what was the challenges around that? Well, I couldn't carry horses for three horses. So, I, you know, horses drink about 20 litres a day. I couldn't have carried 60 litres a day of water. So I had to find water every day. And that was the most nerve-wracking, stressful thing was on the trail, was um, providing for my horses, maybe water or food. Um, I was responsible for their well-being and, and their, that was my most priority. And, and finding water was a bit nerve-wracking sometimes. So that was very much part of the logistics, talking to locals as I went through the country, making sure there was water at points where I was expecting it and allowing enough daylight if I got to a point and, saw, and didn't find water to be able to do a double day and go find water at the next point. So I would leave. I'd go at 4 o'clock in the morning, leave about 7 or 8 and... Um, travel through the early part of the day and if I didn't find water then I still have a few contingency hours of daylight to be able to find water um, which did happen a couple of times so yeah that was a big challenge and this isn't a trail that's paved or marked sometimes you're seriously no. bushwhacking aren't you yeah absolutely sometimes you're fully bush bush bashing we call it um the guidebooks are helpful, but they are 30 years old and the little mud maps and the directions in it are pretty crazy and I'm doing it backwards. So, you know, directions are head northwest on that mountain ridge for, you know, two kilometers and, or a kilometer. And then as you head down into the saddle, turn um, southeast uh, past the creek. And I'm, I'm doing this all backwards. So it's really <laughs> tricky. And then um, if you come across that spotted cow, you've gone too far, turn around, go right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, you know, in 30 years, the landscape's changed and, um, you know, people put different fire break tracks and um, new tracks and whatever. So it can get really confusing and you, you get you get good at it, at reading the, the country, the landscape and your mud maps. And um, I did have a, um, a little satellite on my phone, an app with um, the HEMA map, sorry. HEMA maps have a nap that are satellite, satellite hooked up on your phone. So I could see where I was, but sometimes it's really hard to relate um, where that is in the landscape. So yeah, it, there was challenges to that for sure, mm. finding my way. And I got off track a couple of times. I never got lost, but I got off track. I like that. I think I'll use that from now on. I'm not lost, I'm just <laughs> off track. You had the company of your beautiful horses and at times your dog fox but it is a long time without human interaction what did you learn about yourself out there um to be honest there's not a lot of like time for reflection apart from the mission of every day mm. to be doing a track like this on your own caring for three horses and yourself finding your way finding water packing unpacking camp um you know making your food finding water for uh, wood making a fire it is such a mission every day, to be honest. Um, and by the time I, I may have a minute to reflect is when I'm ready for bed and passing out because I'm so shattered. 
So I guess the things that I discovered would be, you know, inner strengths, things that, you, you, you know, I knew I was quite capable and I'm quite confident, but um, when I got very sick and, you know, being physically not able doing a trek like this is really challenging. Um, I guess finding this inner strength and this determination and, and will that just kept me going to the very end. Your, your mind has a way of thinking it can't, but really your body can and you've just got to push through it. Well, just the physical challenge alone, it's not like you're doing this massive day's yakka and then coming home and having a hot shower and a comfortable bed. What were some of the demands on your body and how did you react? Well, you know, I, I was sore and exhausted at the end of the day, but again, the toughest thing was having the, the sickness. So I contracted Ross River fever two months, two and a, a month and a half before arriving at Cooktown. Um, and that was a, a whole different level of, of hardness and difficulty and, and grueling. And, you know, it's looking back, it, it, it broke me. When I finished the trail, I was just like so broken mentally and physically to push through the pain and the exhaustion and what Ross River does to your body um, was really hardcore. And yeah, if physically, like the pain that Ross River inflicts on you, on your joints, um, intense fever and stuff. And be, and I just, I just dosed myself up on painkillers and anti-inflammatories and just kept going. But looking back now, you know, four years later, uh, five years later, I'm still bearing, um, you know, cycles from um, Ross River and still recovering from it and, you know, pushing your body in, in, that, in those ways is not very smart. But at the time for me, there was no, you know, I had done over 4,000 kilometers. I wasn't about to quit. But looking back now, I'm like, you know, you've only got one body. You need to look after it. But um, mm. yeah, yeah, I didn't have much self-preservation in sense of myself back then. Now I'm a lot more appreciative of those things. <laughs> after being a mother and, you know, having Ross River again was a, newborn baby and breastfeeding and no sleep and whatever you just really appreciate how much your body um is only one and you need to nurture it you were hospitalized uh, just before you finished weren't you yeah i was hospitalized twice with ross river to diagnose it and the second time with a really bad staph infection so having trekked an extra thousand kilometers with ross river a week before cooked down my body just shut down it was like no you've pushed too hard um, and I got a really bad um, staph infection in my foot and my leg and I had disregarded for a couple of weeks because I just wanted to keep going and um, end up in hospital on intravenous antibiotics because um, the infection was um, almost going to the bone. So that was, again, very silly, but, um, you know, the things that you do when you want to finish something. You had summit fever, as they call it in the mountain game. <laughs> <laughs> the summit's so close, we'll do anything to get there. We'll be back with Eleanor in just a moment, but now a word from today's sponsor. Maya Grazing is a proud supporter of Country Women, and they are the sponsor for this episode of Grazy Her. As an Aussie-founded ag tech company with a high share of exceptional women, they celebrate diversity in all forms. At Maya Grazing, it's not just about software. They marry the power of data analytics with the art of grazing management, turn grazing intuition into hard facts. Built on a foundation of regenerative agriculture, Mia Grazing helps livestock producers big and small profit. Their solution helps graziers develop a strong relationship with their land to unlock productivity gains, including growing and retaining soil carbon. 
Find out how to never be overstocked or understocked with Maya Grazing. That is M-A-I-A Grazing. Maya Grazing. Grown by graziers. Loved by graziers. How many days were you spending in the saddle? Oh, sorry. How many hours uh, in the day were you spending oh, in the saddle? Sure. Uh, it totally depends on the terrain. So in the hard Victorian country, um, it was so tough going and I was on my feet most of the day because it was so steep and my horses really weren't working with me. I was pulling them. So in the hard Victorian country, I'd probably walk most of it. Um, and most days, even on a long day, which is 30, 40 kilometres, 50 was the longest um, we did. We could, um, I'd walk about at least a third of the way, so I'd do at least 10 kilometres of the day just to stretch my legs and um, to be able to give the horses a break. Um, so we'd be anywhere between five to 10 hours in the saddle a day. Um, but, you know, the amount of time it takes to pack up camp and um, then unpack it, I needed lots of, you know, I left, I would take two or three hours to pack camp in the morning and take care of the horses and then, an hour to um, undo camp at the end of the day. So there's a lot you have to do around um, the, tr- the trekking hours as well. So you did have to pause for, I think, five months. Uh, was it halfway through the trail because of cyclone season? What was it like having to leave the trail and then to come back? Was it very frustrating for you? Um, so it was not halfway. I was quite, I was, yeah, almost three quarters of the way. Um, it was very frustrating, heartbreaking. I really had to envisage doing the whole trial in one go. Um, and again, because it had been, you know, such huge logistics preparation and we're doing it, having to pause it and then start again was definitely frustrating. Um, but at the same time, I wasn't going to compromise my horse's well-being and, and, condi- and condition and welfare. So we had travelled as fast as we could, um, keeping them in really good condition. And when I got to Nebo in Queensland, um, it just got too hot, too humid, and my horses are from cold country, and um, cyclone season is not something you can battle with, you know, there's um, tropical storms, you know, in every afternoons, and it's wet, and it's, it's just not manageable, rivers are impassable, so I just had to accept it, um, but it was very hard, it was very hard to, yeah, very frustrating, very hard, I felt like I had failed, Um, my dream, my intention. And at the time, it was a very, very hard realisation. And once I had decided, I was a few days from Nebo, that I was going to pull up in in Nebo for a few months break. It was the hardest week on the trail. After 10 months on the trail, that week of, you're going to pull up in a week when you get to Nebo, that week felt forever. And it felt like I had failed. And it every day felt like an absolute mission. And I was really disappointed with myself. but it was the it was the most um, reasonable and the only thing to do actually the only thing to do so um, yeah it was it was disappointing and I was upset with myself but um, it was the the right thing to do so I went back to work but you know work uh, again it is not a, a rest like in the remote communities I was it was summer it's grueling hot um, and the situation now um, on the communities is really really sad and upsetting and um the stuff that I work with is um emotionally really really challenging so those five months definitely want a break um they were really hard work and really challenging emotionally but um 
at the same time, you know, physically I managed to recover a little bit. And um, when I was, I was really ready to get back when I, when I got back. And then that's when Cyclone Debbie hit just before I went back. Um, so I got held up um, in between transport with my horses for a few days until I, again, I got back on the trail and it was extremely wet. And um, that's why they had lots of mozzies around and I contracted Ross River through that. Mm. There were some unbelievably challenging uh, and trying moments on the trail, but also some incredible ones. And you also actually met your now husband, Mitch, on the trail. How did you two meet? Um, yeah, so yeah, challenging times, sure. And one of the biggest highlights of the trail is um, the people I met along the way. Um, people in Australia, in the bush, in rural areas are extremely helpful, generous, kind. And so many people... Um, yeah, offered me, you know, a, a bed, a hot shower. And I was extremely grateful at the time when it, every time, uh, every time it happened. So there's a beautiful culture in the bush of um, solidarity. And um, I'm really grateful for that. Mm. And I met my now husband, Mitch, um, outside his family cattle property, where we um, have based ourselves from the last few years. Um, so his parents' property is on the national trail or um, just yeah, beside it. I was on the dirt track and he was on his tractor um, of the property driveway and we just came out of pork and met and um, we chatted for a bit and um, he offered to bring me a beer at my camp that day, that night and um, I accepted and um, yeah, we, we caught up for a few beers and then he'd come and find me in the bush a few times and bring me a few beers and a few, um, you know, fresh things to eat, which was pretty exciting. Um, and he kept doing that until I got to Cooktown, would come and drive overnight and come and find me in the bush somewhere. And one time he even um, came and picked me up in a helicopter and took me to um, the ocean because I told him how much I was missing the ocean. And he just came and picked me, he's a chopper pilot, he came and got me in the chopper and took me to an island for a couple of days, which was pretty special. <laughs> But um, none of it was going to take me away from my goal to reach Cooktown and to do it on mine. Um, so I carried on and he was very respectful of that, which I really appreciated about him. And um, yeah, when I got to Cooktown at the end, he, and I had, had Ross River fever and he had helped me for a couple of weeks. Um, I, yeah, he I came and picked me up. It was a cattle truck with my horses and my dog and took me back to the family property. And um, since we have been together. Uh, I just love how life works and the ripple effect of choices. And also for him, you know, it's not often that a gorgeous French woman materializes out of the bush on three horses to your property. So farmer wants a wife, eat your heart out. It's just an amazing story. So you didn't uh, just, that wasn't the end of your adventure when you, when you pulled up in Cooktown. Tell me about how the trip to Mongolia eventuated and, and why you chose to do that. Well, that was a bit crazy because I was obviously, like I said, so broken from Ross River and having done a year on the trail. I, but at the same time, I was really lost. A few days before reaching Cooktown, three of my life were coming to an end. Mm. And the idea of going back to normal, normal life was mm. a bit uh, daunting. I was like, oh, what now? And I was really not looking forward to it. And this woman who was um, inaugurating an endurance race in the Gobi Desert reached out and asked me if I wanted to be sponsored to go um, participate in the race for the inauguration and do a bit of a sponsorship for her, which um, I ended up accepting, accepting because it sounded like a good way to just keep on my crazy adventures and um, avoid the real world a bit longer. 
Um, but it was total insanity. I had a, I finished a trail and I had a month to train for riding 80 kilometers a day, um, which is super demanding physically. Um, and this wasn't just yeah. at a, a walk, you know, you're going fast. Oh, you're trotting and countering the whole day. Yeah, you have to vet check. So you, it's like a proper endurance race with vet checks mm-hmm. where you have to keep your horses um, fit and um, the heart rate healthy through the, heart, the whole day. But yeah, you're trotting and my legs were killing at the end of the day, especially with Ross River Fever. And you had a different um, so horse each day. This wasn't... Yeah. yeah, so you have a different horse every day and you don't pick them, they get drawn out of a hat. So you never know what you're going to get. Someday you get a really lazy fat one that has nothing in him. And <laughs> the next day you might have a really wild one that's been ridden once and you just hang on for your dear life until you get to the other side. Um, but it's really fun. And I think I, I got lucky because I ended up winning the race and I'd never done an endurance race. But um, I think my where I was um, lucky is I think people, professional endurance riders are most likely to ride their own horses and know their horse as well. But when we were on these little Mongolian ponies, um, we still had to read their well-being through the rides and work out, you know, um, when to push them and when to hold them back so that you make it through the vet check and their heart rates were healthy. But um, a lot of those people's read it out, whereas I managed to read my horse as well. After spending a year on the road with my horses, I was able to know, you know, no, understand and read my horse well um, throughout the endurance race, and I've edited in every day, no matter what day I play, what place I put, I came in, and um, and that got me first. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, it's an amazing experience. I understand that lack of direction and purpose after you had spent three years uh, either preparing or on the trail. How did you find that direction again? It's like wedding blues times a gazillion. Uh, kind of yeah um to be honest I had done so much crazy stuff all my life and so much trouble um and meeting Mitch was really special and I was really excited about settling some roots and just really you know being somewhere just being for a little bit and mm. the property is magnificent and it's a beautiful place and I really enjoy cattle work and um that really um, felt right at the time. I was really happy with that. Um, and then Mitch was flying all over the country. So he's a water, he's a firefighting helicopter pilot, and um, I followed him a fair bit on his um, flying journeys. Um, so we, you know, I'd go to WA and New South Wales with him and stuff, which I was happy to do. Like I had, you know, I had spent so much time, energy in doing my crazy adventures. I was happy to just um, follow him and be with him for for a bit. Um, and then um, we decided to start a family and um, we have our beautiful son, Raphael. And again, I was very ready to start a family and um, really excited to do it with Mitch and it felt right. And I guess I didn't really have time to have the full on blues, but I guess the blues came as, as a mother of, you know, um, finding that balance between being a mother and still having a sense of direction and purpose. And Mm. that's what I'm doing now with my studies, with my equine therapy that um, I'm absolutely loving is, is just as a mother finding that sense of purpose and direction. I'd love to touch on that idea. Um, In that postpartum period, you were living on the cattle station, which is 10,000 acres, 90 minutes out of Bundaberg. Your family is in France and very, very limited support when you are that isolated. How did you find that that period and, and how did COVID also affect your life at that time? 
Um, well, the first six months, it was bliss, like having a little baby in nature. It just felt, you know, so special to be able to just, um, yeah, nurture, be at home in a beautiful environment. My horses were at the window every morning and I felt really blessed. Eventually, I had um, au pairs at the time before COVID um, that would help out in the mornings and I'd be able to still go and help out on the farm and do a bit of cattle work or um, I acquired three, two new Brumbies, which one was in full, um, so I had a beautiful little filly, which was awesome. Um, and I learned Liberty Techniques with a trainer in Brisbane through Zoom through COVID. I tamed two wild Brumbies um, with Liberty and that was my little bit of um, bruising space as a mother was just a couple of hours in the morning I had to repair and I would still um, do my work with my horses but when um, when my husband worked away a lot and I couldn't get repairs anymore because of um, COVID there was no backpackers around um, the isolation really hit um, really hit hard and that the fact that you know my family was overseas that I'm too far away for friends or anyone to come and visit I didn't have a social life I didn't have any support it became really detrimental to my mental health, I'd say. So um, my husband was really willing to, you know, to help out, but he was away working most of the time. And um, that's when I voiced the need to uh, move away from the property for now that we have, you know, a child in young age and I don't have any support. So we have bought a, um, a place by the coast, um, just east of Bundaberg in a small um, coastal town called Bagara. And um, I'm now here most of the time during the weekend. We go backwards and forwards with the farm. But for now, um, without any support and without being able to work on the property, living on the land, not being able to be involved in it and reduced to just um, looking after my son and, and serve my husband was just not my cup of tea. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really, it's something that a lot of mothers would resonate with that, that grappling with the sense of identity and then coupled with isolation. COVID has certainly shown us all how isolation, how isolating it is uh, being siloed away from other people. So I can absolutely understand why you decided to move to the coast and the plan is to hopefully bring your horses to where you are now. Is that right? Well, I have already. So I have Cooper and River um, with me here. I've, I've got an adjustment paddock just 10 minutes from where we are. And River is um, now become a riding for disabled horse or is in the process of it. Um, he's just passed his first assessment um, because I volunteer at the Riding for Disabled School in Bundaberg. And um, I want to bring yeah my horses into doing that. So um, and also um, start an equine therapy business in the future. So um, I, I want them with me. And ultimately, my horses are my family. So I want to live mm. with them. So um, Roxanne is pretty much retired and she's with the other wild Brumbies um, and loving, she loves, she's in love with the other mare that I um, brought last year. Um, so she's enjoying some um, lovely retired time on a few hundred acre paddock, um, loving life. And I take still great care of her and I love seeing her when I'm at the farm and the boys are here in Bundaberg with me for now. And yeah, eventually we'll, we'll, we'll have a place um, with a bit of acreage so I can run my client therapy business. But for now it's, um, it's worked out that way. You wrote your book Wild at Heart. Uh, and it was originally published in France, I think in, when was that, 2018? What was that experience like writing your, writing your book and reliving those, those memories alongside your mum, who is a journalist and, and helped you with the ghostwriting element? At the time, to be honest, it was very challenging because the trail had been so hard. It was really 
trying to go back to a normal life and put it behind and just go back to normal life. And I was following Mitch around flying and um, just trying to get back to work. I was doing some cattle work. I was doing some um, station work. Um, I was doing some, I was um, doing some track work with racehorses. And my mother came from France. My mother is beautiful, but she's very intense. And she's like, <laughs> I came here to do this book with you <laughs> and every single day for three months. <laughs> um, we wrote and, um, you know, I, I had a partner and I wanted to get back to normal life and work. My mother was like, I am here to do this book. <laughs> but it's relieving their journey, I guess, when it was still so raw and still so... Um, I only just finished it. It was hard to really, you know, I hadn't really processed it at the time. So mm -hmm. I feel like the book in French is, uh, I don't feel really close to it, I guess. I, I felt like I just spilt it out, but I didn't, I, I didn't really emotionally, I don't know how to explain it, but just have the, have the perspective and process time to, to put uh, all of my emotional being in it. Whereas I was very fortunate to have a fantastic publisher here in Australia, Firm Press, who gave me that opportunity with my translator, who's a fantastic woman, Catherine um, de Saint-Fal, who's I worked very closely with to the English version to really, a few years later, um, really put in that emotional aspect and the time of having the time to process, um, you know, everything was a bit of perspective and understanding what I had been through and being able to put it, the emotions into words, I suppose. Um, mm. So the second time around I felt um, was a really special experience and I, I felt a lot more invested. The first time around I was commissioned by my publisher in France and I felt like it was more of a, oh, you know, I have to do this kind of thing. <laughs> um, and I was, you know, it was raw and I, I wanted to move on. Um, so there were quite different experiences, yeah. Mm, I think any author who's on deadline to finish a book would really like to borrow your mum, though. She sounds like <laughs> <laughs> she'd get the job done. <laughs> no, my mum was amazing, and it's really I'm grateful to her because yeah, without her, I, I, she's well, very well written, and she really helped me at, at a time where I was struggling with it to, um, you know, put most of it on paper, which was a, a hard job, and she was amazing at doing it. The photos are sublime, and you had photographer Kat Vinton join you how long did she join you on the trail and what was that like having her there um it was a godsend she's the most amazing woman um and her and i have a pretty crazy story we hadn't met her for five minutes literally five minutes in london um the year before i left and she's a specialized adventure expedition photographer she goes in every corner of the world antarctica underwater um and her passion is documenting the last nomads of the world so she goes and submerses herself in people's life and most um the like the salt um yak um sorry like the salt traders with yaks in the himalayas and goes and live with them for three or four months and documents their way of life and has an amazing way of um immersing herself in the culture and and adapting and, and a resilience. And she's just the most amazing person I have ever met and become my best wow. friend. I told her about my project and she said, a year before I left, she said, I would love to come and document your trip. And I was like, I don't have the funds. She's like, no, I'll just come and do it for free. And I was like, what? Wow. And um, amazingly, if, you know, it wasn't quite a year, but a few months later, she reached out, I was on the trail and she said, hey, I've got, I've, I've got a paid job um, in Asia. I can." you know make swing by australia rest of, yeah swing by <laughs> australia and come and document your journey she's an amazing woman and she did she came and found me in you know i was inland from townsville at the time and i had an amazing old fellow i had met in the bush that brought her out to me and oh, how um, extraordinary. She tracked, 
yeah, seven weeks on foot with me, on foot. She refused to go on horseback when I offered her so many times because she's like, I'm here to document and I'm going to take pictures. And she would walk every day, the 30, 40 Ks a day in the bush. She, she has, she's extremely talented artist as a photographer. She spent three or four days not taking a single picture and observed us. And at the end of the three or four days said, I think I've got it. I think I've got the essence of your trip and it's your relationship with your horses and your dog. And I said, absolutely. Thank you for getting it. Um, you know, the essence of my trip was my relationship with my horses and my dog. And she really captured that in those photos. And um forever grateful to her to have come and to have done such an amazing job of documenting and capturing the essence of my trip. Oh, the, the memories and, are so treasured. Yeah. And also she came at a time when I had Ross River really bad and having her an extra set of hands to help me unpack pack camp was invaluable and her spirit. She's the most um, cheerful, uplifting, positive person. And she just made um, my days so much easier in a sense with Ross River. It was a godsend to have her. Wow. It, it is an amazing story. You, your intention before the trail really was to raise awareness and advocate for the Brumbies. Do you feel like you've done that? And, and what's the response been like from the public? Um, I feel like I've done that. I feel like I've definitely could have done more. You can always do more. But um, it was really hard on the trail to do a lot of advocating because I was in the bush, I had limited um, service and I was on my own. So um, in terms of having a full-on campaign at the time, it was difficult. But every opportunity I had, every media exposure I had, that was my message and that was really important to me. Sometimes in small country towns, I would go and take the horses to all people's home or schools and again, um, you know, advocate for the Brumby flight and explain to people the um, their situation and the message that were used. And um, so, yeah, and in the press after, um, I feel like I, I did as much as I could as well. There's a lot of organization out there. There's a lot of work from amazing people out there. And um, last year, in 2000, last year, no, in 2019, we got, we reached quite a big goal of um, the government uh, passing a bill to recognize the heritage value of the horses, which means now that um, they have to be a lot of consideration in how they're managed, not just, oh, there's too many, we're going to go shoot them. So that was a big win. And that was certainly not my, my doing. There was a, a big collective of people and Brumbies associations and people in parliament like Peter Cochran and stuff really pushing for that. And I feel, you know, every little bit everyone can do helps. And um, yeah, I hope, yeah, I, I played a part in it. And your work with horses will continue uh, once you graduate with equine therapy. Can you just tell me a little bit about what equine therapy is and, and how you plan to use it? I've just started studying it um, three months ago now and I really feel like I've landed at home in my heart. It's the most amazing thing. So I've always thought I would love to work with horses, but when you think about any horse industry, they're pretty horrid, <laughs> basically, and treat the horses as tools and not really respectfully. And whenever I thought of it, and any horse industry, I was like, no, I can't, I couldn't work with my horses in any of those industries. So the idea of working with horses was like, no, it's never going to happen. It's always going to be my passion, my hobby, but not going to be possible. I had been looking into um, equine therapy courses, and I couldn't find any for ages. And um, any that was based in that were based in Australia with a counselling degree attached to it, basically, because with equine therapy you have to either be a psychologist or a counsellor and then gain the um, counselling, the equine skills attached to it. So equine therapy, equine mental health therapy is, is about um, utilising 
to horses or working with horses as equal partners, as um, sentient beings, uh, as practitioners, to help people overcome mental health issues such as anxiety, depression, PTSD, um, all these kind of issues that people um, have. Horses typically are a very hypersensitive animal, a flight, a fight or flight animal, and therefore as a prey animal, they, they're very heightened and they're, and they're very alert and they're very aware of picking up people's emotions. So with um, equine therapy, you use the horses to help people understand and work with their emotions basically the horses will pick up their emotions and mirror them to the client and there's so many different varied tools and exercises you can do but it, it's been a mind-blowing learning curve so far we've had practices where basically being clients and therapists in a paddock with horses with a herd of horses and um, and it's just fascinating how they have that ability to give this um, bodily experience where the people really feel the emotions inside of them. I'm, I'm struggling to put it in good words yet. I'm still learning, but yes. it's it's fascinating. Well, I've always thought that horses are medicine, so I guess now it's backed by science, which makes perfect sense. Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, your your life and story is just so extraordinary. So I really want to thank you for your your generous time in sharing it with us. Thank you, Eleanor. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. And um, Grazia does a, a fantastic, um, have a fantastic magazine, and it's a privilege to be on your podcast. Thank you so much. What a story! There are so many extraordinary experiences in the world that I think, wow, that would be amazing to do. But to actually plan and accomplish such a feat is another thing altogether. I'm so impressed with Eleanor's capabilities, her bravery and her strength, and also her passion and advocacy for the Brumby. The management of the Brumby is a nuanced conversation, and it was great to hear her side of the story. There's actually an extract of Eleanor's book, Wild at Heart, in the winter edition of Grazio magazine. Make sure you get a copy and check it out. The photos are sublime. If Eleanor's story has inspired you to dream up an adventure, I would love to hear about it. You can always slide into mine or Grazy Her's DMs or tag us on social media. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you listen to your potties. It really helps others find us. Until next time, keep well. This is a Grazy Her podcast produced by Manson and Company. Mm-hmm.